Podcast 44, Review of Gaia's Garden, Chapter 4. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. We're on. It's recording. Hot dog. All right. So welcome to another podcast with me, uh, Paul Wheaton, and and with me are Jocelyn Campbell and Dave Bennett. Um, so today we're going to talk about um, <clears throat> what is this? Oh, it's chapter four in Gaia's Garden. Uh, and and before uh, we started recording, I I know we were just visiting about it, and 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 uh, I was saying that I felt like it's the best chapter so far. I bet the opening quote made you happy. The Latin American farmer that told Yanto Evans this. That okay. <clears throat> Let's see. Um, of course, you have terrible soil problems in your country. What do you expect when you call it dirt? <laughs> Well, that's kind of like from when we reviewed that movie, uh, Dirt, the movie. Exactly. Uh, you didn't like that. I Yeah, I did not like that. Uh, and then, of course, it says um, uh, there's a, uh, dirt is a derogatory word. Give me the dirt on this guy. Or pornography is called dirty. Um, and so, it, I yeah, I prefer soil. But what I, what I circled, what I, you know, when I marked up in this, at the beginning, was the actual title of the chapter, Bringing the soil to life. I mean, the, the quote the, the quote that I have my quote on on my profile at, at Kermes is when there's no life in this soil, it's just dirt. Mm. That's and that's totally true, and that's why I did not like it when they called when they had that thing about dirt the movie, and it was like they kept saying dirt. I kept feeling like you need you need to differentiate between dirt and soil. Um, but I think that uh, Toby certainly understands the difference between dirt and soil. Right. He, you know, if if you didn't get it from the first couple chapters on why, you know, why doing things with in alignment with a more mature ecosystem makes sense, then this chapter. Expands on that hugely with the impacts of working towards a mature ecosystem with the soil. Do you think, just in general? Um, I I do think. I, I, I there are so many awesome things in this chapter. So I mean, like, I I, I really marked it up. <sighs> I I I've, I. I'm just itching to say stuff, um, but I well dive in. Okay, dive in. I, I don't want to. I don't want to plow over everybody. But, but one of the things is, is like on the second page of the chapter, then uh, he's got these two this, this diagram, this picture, and it shows a pyramid, and then um, uh, at the bottom of the pyramid is soil life, then above that is plants, then above that is insects, and then above that is vertebrates, which include people, and and it's it's kind of like he's got two different pyramids. One is got a very broad base and one has a very narrow base kind of demonstrating that you know if you've got less soil life you have less of everything else and it all starts with the soil and um oh, i just really enjoy this image i i want to totally plagiarize it and call it mine and i want to stick it up on everything and wave it in front of everybody's face 
I bet Toby would let you stick it on things as long as it had a link to uh, selling his book. <laughs> Maybe I'll ask him. No doubt he would yeah. do that. Yeah, that would be a win-win for you both. It would look good on a T-shirt. <laughs> it would. It would. Um, I've got a, 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 a quote in here that uh, I've, I've marked, um, which, which aligns really well with a thread at Permies that um, uh, there have been two new videos posted at Permies that I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking might possibly, I mean, definitely better than any videos that I've put out ever. And, and might possibly be, you know, video of the year. And um, they're both lectures, which, as, as much as that might be entirely boring to some people, these were just riveting to me. And um, one of them is uh, an hour-long lecture by Alan Savory. And so we've got a thread about, it's called, like, Alan Savory wins an award or something like that. And um, it is uh, basically describing some of the, some work that he's done with fighting desertification. And uh, well, you know, there's I mean, this is this is like two or three podcasts in itself. But um, I'm trying to think of how to summarize it real quick. He compares he compares uh, some charts to um, um, what's his face with the uh, um, the inconvenient truth. And and uh, carbon problems, global warming problems, and then he lines it up and how it matches up with uh, desertification problems. And so basically, this guy makes a case for how um, uh, it is, a, you know, uh, global warming and uh, the the rise in carbon in our atmosphere is indeed a man-made thing, but it's not what you think it is. That that really it has to do with desertification. And we're just doing the desertification dance all over. I mean, think about what the Sahara used to be. It used to not be a desert, but it was poor agricultural practices, uh, many believe, that led to desertification. And and he's citing all kinds of examples of where this is continuing to go on, including in our own country. So, Dave, you were attempting to say something? Uh, I think... I think I was just going to make a comment about the when you were talking about the, the those pyramids, but that that we're past there. <laughs> okay, no. let, let me try and wrap up my little segue here, and I'll come back. But um, uh, anyway, uh, uh, Savory um, uh, shows how he has been able to reverse desertification with elephants and with other large mammals, large grazing mammals, who are herding. And 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 basically, uh, this is this is what he wrote in his book. What 30, 40 years ago? I don't know. It was a long, I'm looking right at it. There it is holistic management is the book that uh, he wrote a long time ago, and. Um, uh, and, and how proper range management with uh, large herbivores actually uh, uh, reverses desertification and, and how this whole thing about um, uh, uh, overgrazing is a myth. There's no scientific background. The science that's been done on overgrazing started with, uh, overgrazing is bad, okay? And then they, they built on top of that. But it's like, 
nowhere was there anything to to demonstrate the foundation that the science was based on to say okay this problem that we're looking at here is indeed overgrazing or is it something else and so basically it turns out uh, according to savory that that the there was never a problem with overgrazing it never happened i mean it is possible for a per, for for somebody to do an over create an overgrazing problem but the problems that are being um mitigated the problems that are being uh examined are not caused by overgrazing i i i completely agree with that just looking at the way distant past of the the Great Plains were when there were millions of bison tearing up the grass and tearing up the grass and eating the grass and it just made the grass stronger all the prairie grasses yeah which is what it goes into a lot of detail about that and the second video goes into even more detail I mean basically optimizing that system uh, is the second video Uh, the one by Greg the one Greg Judy something or healed riparian areas that sounds like it that sounds like it yeah I pulled up the thread it's the permaculture forum and it it is titled Alan Savory wins award yeah what these these two videos and so I'm I you know I've I've got to do some I've got I've got to make like a web page or something this stuff is just so important uh it's so it's so good I'm so I'm I'm so impressed and um and then uh here so here we're looking at Toby's book I've got I've, I've got his first edition from the year 2000 and, and Toby says, <clears throat> vegetarians may be appalled, but much of gardening is actually raising animals, the tiny ones under the earth's surface. And and so um, I I do kind of think that I mean that there's a lot of vegetarians and vegans that are completely happy to move animals into their landscape, and there are others where it, they are like very adamant against it, like they you know they they feel that that's using the animal inappropriately or something like that, and I. I I think Toby's point here is just awesome, and that is that um, uh, you're going to have animals in your landscape. You're going to have, I mean, if, if you're not going to run animals through it, however you do that, you're going to have your insects, and you're going to have your wildlife, and you're going to have, and so it's like, uh, I, I don't understand how people differentiate between uh, um, these animals and uh, domesticated animals, you know, um, uh, animals that, that choose to hang out with you, um, even though they might, and granted, it's like, you know, you can choose, if you're going to choose to have some sort of animals that are going to help you with your chores, and then, and then one of the cases that's made Made, um, by those two fellas uh, in those videos is is that it's it's the large herbivores that make a difference. Then uh, uh, yeah, you could you, you could choose to treat them well. There are lots of examples of those kinds of animals being treated poorly, but you don't have to do you don't have to treat them poorly. Right. Good right. point. Very good point. I've uh, I'm I feel like I'm being a little too dominant in this conversation. <laughs> well, <laughs> got a little excited there. <laughs> that's yeah, no, that's very exciting, and I'm 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 still not understanding just yet how you're tying in the herbivores, uh, you know, in these videos. But it sounds like they must have gone into other details about soil life that was similar to what um, 
Toby's talking about here. So I'm, I'm still not quite getting the connection. There so was we... a lot of stuff about soil life and okay. and a lot of stuff about um, – and, and Toby's going to get into this in a little bit more uh, – a little later in this chapter. Um, but uh, um, in those two videos, uh, there was a lot about how when an, a large herbivore comes along and eats a bit of, of grass – then um, they they tug at the roots, and um, uh, by by because they literally wrap their tongue around around a big gob of grass, and then they they pull, and it loosens the roots a little bit, and and uh, each time that it does that, um, it's the 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 plant kind of grooves on that, but uh, you know there's also a little bit of I mean like some of the little root hairs are broken and stuff like that, and there's there's die off of organic matter. Right, and, to to and Toby does talk about that—the little root hairs and how they feed the soil—and and gosh, he goes into the chemistry of how all of this happens and how the little root hairs have acids that help leach the minerals out of the rocks, and uh, as well as all of that little root die off. But first, he he starts talking about the little uh, the the soil life, the first recyclers, is, is the first section. He goes into a lot of detail about all of the little live creatures in the soil yeah. that make it work. So that, you know, and then he has another, so he has more diagrams about all of these little critters and what they look like. Um, not just worms, but, you know, the bacteria, the fungi, the little um, springtails, the ac actinomycetes. <laughs> critters. Or how, They're critters. However you would say that. So, you know, critters is easier to say. <laughs> and protozoa. I mean, he, he really goes into the science of how all of these work together, the science and the details. Um, yes. So, it, it, I don't know. It, um, that that was just, well, I kind of knew some of that from reading about vermicomposting, from doing composting. I knew there were a lot of creatures involved, so nothing in there really, you know, jumped out at me. Um, I mean, it was just amazing to see, you know an example of more of the details of how all that works. I think for me what was more interesting and, and stuck out more to me beyond the just critters was um, a little bit the examples of the chemistry and the root hairs and the minerals and how all of that does uh, get built. It can be increased by natural ways, and he goes into a lot of details on how it's increased in natural ways is better than external inputs, and especially since chemical, you know, especially better than chemical inputs. But he does a lot of comparisons there on, well, if you just build your mature ecosystem, it's it works better. So out of that part, I, I circled a paragraph. <clears throat> and if the two of you don't mind, I'll just go ahead and read that right now. Okay, good. Nobody minds. Agricultural chemists have missed the boat with their soluble fertilizers. They're doing things the hard way by using an engineering approach rather than an ecological one. 
Yes, plants are quite capable of absorbing the water-soluble minerals and chemical fertilizer. But plants often use only 10% of the fertilizer that's applied, and rarely more than 50%. The rest washes into the groundwater, which is why so many wells in our farmlands are polluted with toxic levels of nitrates. Yeah, I I thought that was useful. I uh, because I think a lot of people, and myself included, are still thinking, well, really, if you don't, you know, add all this stuff, can it really build on its own? And he, um, and and I think that's a brilliant example right there. You know, you add this stuff, you're really not helping so much as you're hurting. True, true, and and uh, and and I like how he then goes into building soil life, and then he starts with compost, and then he says, "But I don't really like that," and then he goes into what's better than compost is sheet mulch, and then he kind of talks about, "But I don't really like that either," <laughs> and and then he talks about uh, cover cropping, and 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 basically he leaves it at that like. Cover cropping the best. <laughs> so I I I really like that because because he was starting to talk about composting and I was kind of like uh, reminded of when we watched the Jeff Lawton video about soils and suddenly right. there's this 20 minute segment of um, of composting and I'm kind of thinking oh boring and and then when we did the review I mentioned that how I, I prefer to end up with a system that doesn't have compost because, uh, you know, everything that could be composted ends up being utilized in some other way. Um, so I was kind of starting to get that feeling as I'm reading this chapter, like, oh, no, Toby's going to talk about, I mean, he's going on and on about compost, and all this compost stuff and everything. And then finally it's like he says, but I don't like to do it. Yay! <laughs> then, then uh, um, you know, then we, then we go into sheet mulching, and then you know, he, he gives a shout out to um, to Ruth Stout, hot dog, and um, but he also um, uh, goes into uh, lasagna gardening, which I'm not a fan of. Um, but then, fortunately, he ditches that, and and we can talk about cover cropping and stuff, and 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 yeah, back into polyculture and that kind of thing. Some, some really excellent points. <clears throat> Did he have a little um, sidebar on woody ways to build the soil in the first edition? Yes, yes, where he mentions hugel culture and the deadwood swale, which okay. sounds like just a variation of hugel culture to me, but uh, maybe I'm mistaken. Well, it's well, it sounds. It does sound like it, but just not. Okay. Well, the uh, the next paragraph that I have marked off here, I think it's the next one. Oh wait, no, I'm skipping all around, so I'm I'm uh, all right. So there's the last one. All right, so the next paragraph I have marked off. <coughs> With humus and all other organic matter gone, the soil loses its fluffy, friable structure and collapses. Clay-based soil compacts to concrete. Silty soil desiccates to dust and blows away. So there's your, there's your uh, dirt versus soil thing right there. Um, and and uh, and I like, in fact, um, 
the way that he describes humus in here is a way that um, it's, it's a much richer understanding of organic matter than I had before. And uh, I actually didn't know this little bit about humus. Humus is like the leftover bits of organic matter that all the critters in the soil don't care for so much. I mean, they'll, they'll consume it if there's nothing better to eat. I, I thought that was uh, interesting. Yeah, the, the more di- the, the more difficult uh, the more difficult portions of the matter that you know, like like the, the stems from leaves or ha- have more lignans in them, so they're more difficult to break down. And they take longer. So eat all the good stuff first. Right. I suppose that if we were carnivores, then we might have uh, killed a water buffalo, and then we eat all the meaty bits and the delicious bits and stuff like that. And then when we get into week three or so, all that's left are some some bones, which we don't care for. But if we don't have any other anything else to eat, we'll just go ahead and chew on bones for a week or two until we get off our butts and go kill something else. Yeah. And so basically, I, I think it's kind of like the bones. Good analogy. Good analogy. So, um, the next bit, better to let humus fluff your soil naturally and to use mulches to smother weeds and renew nutrients instead of unleashing fertility at a breakneck mechanical pace, we can allow plant roots to do the job. Questing roots will split nuggets of earth in their spare in their own time, opening the soil to microbial colonization, loosening nutrients at just the right rate. Once again, nature makes a better partner than slave. And so I think this is where he's he's advocating not tilling the soil. Right. So he talks at great length about what you know, tilling tilling the soil does and how you get that quick release. But then, you know, a lot of what you quickly released went into the groundwater or the atmosphere or went away. And, um, you know, while your plants immediately can get some immediate uptake still, this year, next year the soil is poorer. Right. And I, I think that's a... I think that bears a lot of repeating for folks. I think that's just going to be, I, I don't know, just hard. You know, I was, I, I was using another analogy. People want to rototill their gardens. They think they need to get rid of all the weeds, start fresh, plant everything in there, and they need to have all these plants with no nothing in between them. Unless it's beauty bark mulch or whatever, you know, it's it's kind of like someone who keeps wanting to reach for that candy bar for a snack <laughs> instead of an apple or a carrot or something. I, I just think, I don't know. I just think for some people, this chapter is, is going into these details could really help them understand a little bit better, and that. Very I think simple. Chapter, very simple. I think this chapter paints a very clear picture. I mean, it, it does the best job that I'm aware of of so many of the things that we try to convey in the world of permaculture. But um, it's it's like the biggest struggle. Um, this this chapter really gets down to the nitty gritty of it and really makes it clear and easy to understand. And it's and while it is a big, it's the biggest chapter so far. 
Um, I I think that it's uh, it's still a, a short, clear, concise way from getting to point A to point B of like, ah, that's why we do it this way. That's what this is all about. I I think it's 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 a just a just a real powerful chapter. When I go around and I talk to people and I try to convince them and they're like, oh, I'm an organic gardener and I'm this is this is as good as it gets. And I try to explain them about these things. It's like this stuff does not go into their head. It's like they've got walls built up and they can't hear any of that. That all doesn't exist. Helen Atow should read this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of points in here that you know I want to I, I got to throw in Helen's face the next time I get a chance. Hey. Helen, huh, look at this, huh? What do you have to say about this, huh? I, you know what? It might be good to get Helen and Toby on the phone at the same time. That's interesting. It would yep. be like it would be like some sort of uh, wrestling match or something, right? <laughs> no. Ding ding ding. <laughs> <laughs> this could be good. This could be awesome. <laughs> um, I think it would make for a really good podcast, actually. <laughs> I, I think so, too. I think so, too. Only um, Toby is kind of soft-spoken and easygoing and and stuff. And, and, and Helen's, like, got uh, a lot of vim and vinegar, you know? Uh, I think I think they'd just get into a really good discussion. I don't think it'd be like a wrestling match. But <laughs> anyway, but um, so yeah, he goes into so getting back to the chapter, which I just you know grossly oversimplified in some of my comments. I there's just so much detail in here that it. When I read a book, I don't necessarily remember the details, but I remember the general the general sense of what was being said. And and I and and then plus I'm always coming at it from the point of view of the beginner and and trying to um, teach people who are new to this. And and I'm not really, you know, I'm not coming up with a lot of nuggets that I can find that are like, well, here's the one nugget, here's the other nugget. I think there's so much all the way across here that it's, it's. I'm struggling to find. I, one of the things that, that one of the most important things that I, I found in this chapter, looking at it from a standpoint of the beginner that you mentioned, is that huh? pe- people that are used to you know, rototilling a spot every year and then making all these nice neat rows of their vegetables and then going out and pulling weeds and things. The way that Toby presents the relationships between the the first recyclers and then the next level and then the next level and and even briefly touches on the biochemistry involved can help them understand why this works this way and why it's better. And I, I think it's really important the way that he presented it makes it easy for just, you know, anybody to understand it, regardless of their background. You're right. Yeah, you're right. And, and just the idea that it can work. And he explains how the minerals, how the hummus is built, how the all of it works together and it really does build good soil in a lasting way um, 
with less work. So so he, he does explain that it does happen that way and, and why it's better. You're right. Yep. Right. So what what's your next what's your next quote, Paul? Okay. <clears throat> It's the part where he's talking about how he's not, he's, he's, uh, uh, he's just talked, uh, he's just filled like a page and a half about composting and the, and, and techniques and, uh, turning the compost and, and all that stuff. And then he says, I'm going to venture once more into the heretical here. Composting isn't my favorite way to build soil. And I try to do as little of it as possible. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So then uh, uh then we get to the part where uh he's got the sidebar. Oh wait, 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 there's one more thing about composting. Also I think composting wastes nutrients. I, I thought that was an awesome point. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of composting, um, there's going to be a, quite a bit of it that is going to leach into the soil, you know, downward below the compost pile. I mean, you end up with this crazy rich soil below the compost pile, um, and nothing's there generally to take it in, and most of it ends up going into your groundwater because you've got such a concentration of your nutrients. It rains, and then, boom, it gets washed away. I, I also think that you experience uh, a lot more denitrification, which is where the nitrogen that's in your compost goes into the atmosphere. And it's kind of like, wait, wait, come back. <laughs> so um, uh, I, I, anyway, as well as possibly carbons. Um, and so I, I, I do agree that, that it's like uh, a little, it, 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 you lose by composting, you lose it. Now, now, granted, there are situations where composting is the best solution, <clears throat> and um, and I'm going to and, and for really, I think that in most urban situations, composting is probably the the, the best way to go. Um, uh, although, and and then frankly, he goes and he talks about sheet mulching, and he talks about Ruth Stout's methods, which include taking your kitchen scraps and just spreading them out on the yard uh, or, or tucking them under a bit of hay out in the yard or, or whatever. And while I agree that that's better, I think that a lot of people, that's, that's going to be going too far for, for a lot of people. And uh, um, frankly, I, you know, for urban folks, uh, the, the chickens, I'd much rather see it fit to the chickens. All right. <clears throat> Um, I, I'm, I'm going to move on to the, the, the Hugel culture thing unless you guys want to talk about composting some more. Well, I just had one, one point that, that I thought of that actually isn't in this chapter, but it, it, it relates. When you were talking about how, you know, about spreading, just spreading your kitchen scraps in the yard. Uh-huh. My, my father's mother, my, you know, my grandmother on my father's side, they had a place out on Long Island where the entire thing was there was a house and sand. Mm. And when they started going out there for their, their vacations and things out of, out of New York City, she started just, she would turn the sand, you know, burying everything, all of her kitchen wastes, everything, under about two or three inches of sand. And it, granted, it took a really, really long time but the, the soil in, in, on that piece of property now, it, it's not sand anymore in, in, in those grasses that grow in sand. It's soil, maybe 10, 12, 15 inches thick. 
just from burying stuff from you know burying all of her organic stuff a few inches under the sand she just carefully you know just kept going into a different place every every day or so and, and just burying stuff that was scraps and after years of doing that it, I mean you know, this is kind of strange because it took so long but she it turned her sand sand lot into a, into a nice piece of dirt and then it turned wait there's more and then eventually it turned into soil and things grow there now when you drive through that that area where her place is it's all green there and then on either side of her and behind her and everywhere else it's all sand so it does work Right. I, it's just, it is, I mean, effectively it is kind of composting, but I don't think composting is really the correct word, but it is breaking down. It is putting organic matter in the soil, and it's doing it much slower. And, and uh, I think that there's a lot to be said for slower. Um, uh, I think there's a lot to be said. I mean, when, when people are doing the composting, I think that the one thing that they gain is that they're killing all of the seeds. <clears throat> but as Toby pointed out, um, who cares about killing all the seeds? And, and uh, I mean, there are a few seeds, there are a few varieties of things I think I would not want in my horticultural endeavors. Um, but for the most part, um, bring it. Bring in the seeds. You know, there's, uh, you know if, if something pops up I don't like, I can always mulch over it. And and uh, or or pluck it or something, but but uh, the great thing about being in permaculture is is that um, we have about twenty times fewer plants that offend us. Well, and even Helen Attow in your podcast with her was saying she did not like getting her her compost piles up that hot um, because if you're killing the seeds, you're also killing the good soil life stuff that you want so it's a very good point she didn't want she didn't want to kill off and helen the the most advanced composter i know of has um throttled back nearly all of her composting operations and and now uh, when left to her own devices uh she does uh, almost no composting so she's she's moving more and more away from from composting for for her stuff uh so and and i mean she's she i remember when she had like a composting laboratory she had a segment of her greenhouse set aside for growing different funk and bacteria and whatever else in fish tanks that would help her composting process and she had very careful controls about how hot she would let her compost piles get like you were pointing out um, and, and so now she's like moving away from all of that so it's not like because uh, I can just see some people being you know getting into this position well then they don't know how great compost is well compost is great stuff but you know what there's better stuff compost is great and awesome but there's better Speaking that, of that, it, yeah, I was gonna say, is that why you wanted to talk about Hugel culture? Oh, look at that! It's time to talk about Hugel culture. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, the funny thing is, is that um, I don't remember. So I, I, I read this book sometime around 2003, I think, um, possibly 2004. 
And um, but then it's like my memory of the word hugel culture comes from when I first heard from Skeeter in uh, January of 2005, and that's when it really stuck in my head. And suddenly I became bonkers about hugel culture. And then it was a few months after that that I put up my first article about hugel culture. And at that point, it's like I remember doing a, a search, you know, Google for Hugo culture and I think there were three pages on the internet that even mentioned Hugo culture and then I put up my article and now there's like 60,000 pages that have the word Hugo culture in them so um, alright here is um, uh, Toby Hemingway describing for us Hugo culture in the carefully tended forests of Central Europe, no scrap of wood is ever wasted. Branches and brushy prunings are used in a gardening technique called culture or mound culture. To create a culture, pile up branches or brush a foot or two deep in a mound four to eight feet long. Stomp on the pile to compact it a bit. Then toss compostable materials, grass clippings, sod, straw, into the pile. Sprinkle some compost on the mound and top with an inch or so of soil. Then plant the culture with seeds or starts. Potatoes really love culture. I can start potatoes in these mounds a month earlier than in garden beds. Squashes, melons, and other vines do well here, too. The decomposing organic matter in culture beds raises the temperature just enough to boost plant growth. Another advantage. As the woody brush rots, it releases nutrients slowly and also holds quite a bit of water. You don't need to fertilize or irrigate culture very often. Ah... What a lovely thing. That is just... That is, it's like there's a whole book in one little teeny tiny blip in his book. That is just spectacularly awesome. Now, of course, Sepp Holzer takes it to a bigger level now. Now, Sepp Holzer's stuff, when he made his videos 12 years ago, pretty much did exactly what was here. But now, Sepp Holzer's like on to Hugo Culture version 2.0. And it's like, you know, wow, these little beds... They, they they hold water for like through a month of drought, but if we make them crazy big, they hold enough water to get plants through three months of drought or four months of drought. So um, now he makes the culture beds like six feet tall. That's right. It's monly culture. <laughs> Okay, it's 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 a it's a happy thought for you. <laughs> <laughs> Going to my happy place. Now, giant giant versions of Google culture should should be uh, popular here in the United States because bigger is better. <laughs> and look how big I am. <laughs> you know, Dave, I, I like more now. <laughs> I, I discovered yesterday when, well, last night while I was listening to to podcast forty. Now I know how big you are, six six. That you are a big man. It's I'm a giant guy. And I'm fat too. <laughs> well, you could you could 
you could stand to, to lose a couple. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome being huge. Um, anyway, uh, uh, I I am so 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 basically. Uh, Toby, uh, I mean, what a the, the fact that he's writing about Hugo culture in the year 2000, um, and it, and it uh, it was pretty much unheard of on the internet in uh, 2005, um, really kind of shows how uh, he's leading leading the, the the pace here. Now, my impression is is that he's writing new stuff now. And I don't, I don't think he's currently working on an update for the book. But now I'm like, like, what kind of of brand new amazingness is he going to bring to us that I can't even comprehend right now? Um, the fact that, I mean, just just because he was so um, such a leader in thought with Hugel culture here in his book and with so many other things here, I mean, he's really uh, there's this is this is excellent evidence of why this book is the most popular book for permaculture today. So now I'm going to get off that uh, soapbox. <clears throat> okay. okay. No, I think the bottoms of my shoes are, might be made of soapboxes. <laughs> That's why you're so tall. <laughs> it it helps. Uh you know, some women wear high heeled shoes. I I wear high heeled soapboxes. There you go. There you go. Um all right, here's the next blip that I've got uh, circled. What what section is this in? This is ooh, the power of sheet mulch. A light mulch of fresh hay laden with seeds imported throngs of exotic weeds and grasses that took years to get under control. Straw, if harvested with a well-tuned combine, contains no seed. It's just the stems of grain plants. Hay is the whole stalk, seed head and all. All right. Being a guy, so here's, here's where I'm going to disagree with Toby. And part of this is because I've I've baled quite a few bales of hay in my time, and I've also driven a lot of combine. And um, I'm and, and while everything that he has said is true, um, I've also done a lot of mulching with both straw and with hay. And and there's a lot of people that 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 are misinformed in this space. And Toby isn't helping things here. Uh-oh. <laughs> Straw contains seed too. Certainly does. And and uh um and so hay contains seed and straw contains seed. And they're both gonna have seeds. And I gotta tell you that if you're gonna use it as mulch, and and frankly, when it comes to mulch there's nothing better, although um and and uh, unless you're going to count the stuff that you're doing as a chop and drop and it's not coming from a bale so much. <clears throat> But um, uh, I'm going to say that of all the mulch that you'll use, hay or straw, about 5% of it's going to have some kind of seed in it that's going to take and get started. And if you're upset about that, you're getting all weepy and, and stuff, then all you got to do is throw a little bit more on it. And and because there's only 5% of it that, you know, where the seeds get started and take, therefore, you have a 95% chance that throwing a little bit more mulch on it is going to smother whatever just popped up. 
I have lots of barley grass out in my yard from mulching with straw. Mm-hmm. And I don't care. I just I like it. Well, and that's the other thing too. It might have a bunch of seed in it, but who cares? I mean, that's probably whatever seed is in it is probably going to be something that we like. And um, there's in, a, in the world of permaculture, there's very little stuff that might pop up that we don't like. So um, I, I I think it's something where hay or straw don't worry about it. That 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 something else popping up. It, it it flipped a switch that reminded me of something I wanted to, to say a little earlier regarding when you were talking about the the permaculturists don't mind a great deal of, of weeds that we get. There are only some that we don't like. One of the things that I've thought, given a great deal of thought about weeds and, and, and growing plants and things that I'm going to harvest from is that when I see certain weeds growing, like especially pioneer weeds growing in, a, in an area that's theoretically really nice, rich soil, there must be something missing there for that to thrive. Mm-hmm. That, that's my that's a, my philosophy on on certain of the pioneer weeds. When if that shows up in your garden, there's something missing from from the soil there. Right. Well, I think I think they are. Uh, there's indicator species. I think in an earlier podcast, Helen and I argued about nettle as an indicator species. And if it wasn't in the podcast, then it must have been one of those times where we were sitting here. You know what? I think it wasn't in a podcast. I think that she and I sat here right with the podcast contraption turned off and argued about nettles for three hours. Oh, my gosh. And uh, uh, whether or not they are an indicator species. And uh, I I feel that nettles are an indicator indicator species of of high nitrogen uh, damp soils. She felt that they were indicators of damp soils, but not high nitrogen soils. So, yeah. Well, but since she's not here, I must be right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that was about hay and straw. And you have a lot of people ask you, I've heard you recommend mulching with straw um, before. And a lot of people ask you, well, what's the difference between hay and straw? So. Okay, so the difference between hay and straw, I mean, basically, uh, in many, many ways, they are the same. But uh, Toby's point is correct here in that, um, basically, uh, straw is where you're going to let the grass plant go to seed, and then the grass plant dries out and becomes, you know, yellowish, brownish. And and then a combine comes along and cuts off most of the seed heads. Um, and and, uh, and the combine operator is constantly ad- adjusting their header to try and, and optimize that. The the header being the the thing that kind of cuts and mows. You you try and set it to where like you're getting like 98% of the seed heads without taking in too much straw under the combine. Um, and uh, and then of course along the way, then a bunch of the seeds thrown at the back, and somehow that ends up being picked up when you're baling the straw later. So so then, yeah, later you, what you'll do is you'll come by and you'll cut the straw near the ground. So, the, so the, the combine cuts the seed heads off fairly high up. So if you've got uh, wheat that's like three feet tall, 
then um, you know, like the, the combine will cut off the top six inches, which includes the seed head. So then you've got this dried, stubbly stuff that's like two and a half feet tall. And then the combine, or then later you have a swather, which is kind of like a big lawnmower, come along and and cut it, cut the straw at the ground level. And then uh, that'll leave piles of it around, and then uh, um, you'll you'll then bale it. Bale it. Um, hay is going to be where you'll the, the the grass will be growing and be very succulent and with generally no seed on it at all. Generally, there might be a little bit, but usually you'll cut it before it seeds, and uh, and everything's still very green and lush. <clears throat> and then you'll come along and you'll cut it near the ground level, generally with a swather. And you'll let it dry out. You'll it'll lay out on the ground to dry because it's green and lush and succulent and full of moisture. So then you you lay it it, it lays in the sun. So when you're making hay, everybody's always watching the weather because you want your your hay to dry in the sun, uh, and you don't want it to get rained on. So you're trying to pick a point in time when you're hoping that it'll be like you know five days straight of good strong sun. Um, and then once it's dry, and usually you'll rake it and flip it over and stuff. Uh, to help it dry faster, uh, then you'll come along with a baler and bale it. Now, of course, with uh, either of those, there could have been other weeds growing out there, something like that, with with the straw or the hay, and then you might get some some seeds for that. So, oh, and then from a gardener's perspective, when you're using uh, hay, uh, hay is like uh, got a carbon to nitrogen ratio of thirty to one, so it's like perfect for composting. It's like you take a bale of hay, you add water, and it will get hot and compost. It's, it's like it's it's instant compost pile. Um, straw is going to have a carbon to nitrogen ratio of 300 to 1. So it doesn't have enough nitrogen to really compost. But if you get it wet, it will kind of slowly break down. But it won't ever really get really hot. Um, I suppose if you were to come out and pee on it a whole bunch, you would add a bunch of nitrogen, and then it would get to the point where it could it could compost. Uh, Toby Toby's table disagrees with you. He says hay is 25 to 1, and that straw is 74 or 80 to 1. Um, well, but I just thought I'd tell you that's in the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'm going. I'm going to stick to thirty to one for. Um, I mean, you could have. I mean, basically, if you're going to have twenty-five to one for hay, that's a that's going to be an even hotter hay. So maybe maybe that's a higher grade hay than average. Um, and then as far as straw being um, only what what do you say, eighty-five to one? Yeah, so that's wheat straw. Oat straw, he says, is 74 to 1. Well, first of all, I'm going to have to say that they're all going to be in ranges. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen hay that was of such a poor quality that it was, it was closer to straw than hay. I mean, it's really an animal isn't going to really eat it. And and then and, and in fact they're basically the same plants generally too. You can take the stuff that you would have as um, hay, and then let it get to the point where it's you know all dried up and dormant, and then harvest it, and then effectively it's straw. But right. that which is I would guess rarely ever done or almost never done, uh, that would contain a lot of seeds. That would be very seed rich, but. I mean, 
people hardly ever do that. So um, uh, at the same time, uh, it's possible that you could have a a straw, and it's some straws are going to have more carbon than others, and some hays are going to have more carbon than others. I'm going to stick to the 30 to 1 and the 300 to 1. Um, and and uh, you know what? I think if you go out on the Internet and you try and search for this stuff, I think you're going to find a lot of different information. So um, um, I think that you could probably pick all kinds of numbers and still be within the range. Okay. Well, we went off into some little details there. Sorry to sidetrack things. We should we should uh, wrap up this chapter if we can. Are we getting close? Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm 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 only halfway through. I think that this <laughs> I think this chapter is going to be a podcast in itself. Ah, okay. All right. Let me let me read my next chunk. Dave, did you have something to say? I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I was just. I just. You guys covered it. It had to do with the. You know, composting straw and hay. I have experience with both of them, and I. The only one of the things I was I was just going to point out that hay does get way. Well, the hay that I get does get way hotter than the straw that I get uh, when I when I use it for the the walls of my compost. The inside of the hay bales. Just from the whatever other material I pile in there, the inside of the wall, the hay bales, deteriorates much, you know, decomposes much more rapidly than than the straw does. Usually by spring, if I use straw to build the build the the pile, the straw is all all moldy but still solid because it takes much much longer to decompose. Okay. I've gotten some video footage recently that I keep putting off sharing because uh, it's kind of like, while I think it's really important information, it'll be yet another one of those videos where I put it out and I feel like the information in it is really important, but then I'll have, you know, a bunch of people standing around saying, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, but, but basically, it's video footage of a pile of wood chips that it's uh, the pile of wood chips is now I think it's about 80 or 90 years old um, and uh, you know here it is organic matter but it's not composting and I and in the video I get a really close up and you can kind of see that they don't look that old they, they look like they're maybe a year or two old they look a little weathered you know but the point is is that it is that it, while it's fully exposed to the elements, it's really not breaking down, which I think makes a lot of interesting points. Um, you know, uh, you know. Of course, the carbon to nitrogen ratio is is crazy high, um, um, and and really to start breaking down, it would need nitrogens and things like that. But it also kind of makes me wonder about like uh, wood that's exposed to air that's not painted and how long does it last i mean these wood chips look pretty untouched i suppose the ones maybe the ones that have decomposed on the top have like you know been rinsed down lower or something like that uh perhaps but variety of tree might have something to do with that too and possibly these are going to be coniferous. Uh, I'm sure uh, it's it's from a, an abandoned wood mill, uh, and so uh, 
I I just think it's it's an important thing that that the wood mill's been gone for thirty some odd years or forty years, and these piles were the furthest piles back, meaning that they were probably created like eighty or ninety years ago or something like that. I when when I was there, I had a guy that was giving me you know a lot of detailed information about it, and and uh, uh, it was really quite fascinating. Um, but and and I think it's like an important point. Uh, um, and it mitigates what a lot of people say, like, you know, if you have this pure carbon thing, it will eventually break down. And I think that that's true, but you might be, be prepared to wait a long while. But when you, when you have that same stuff get into contact with the soil, it breaks down like 50 times faster. So, all right. <clears throat> Moving right along, uh, the the next little bit that I have marked in the in the chapter is under the section cover cropping for fertility, um, and it says <clears throat> roots are nature's subterranean humus builders. Above ground, leaf litter does the job, but in the underworld, roots add organic matter and. and in vast quantities during their constant cycles of growth and decay. Uh, now, and there's another piece that I, I, I have uh, marked here. Plants and their roots don't grow smoothly and continuously, but in spurts. These growth periods are controlled by many overlapping cycles, day and night, wet and dry, cold and warm, and even by the comings and goings of soil organisms. Um, and, then, and then one more bit uh, in, this, in this section. During this cycle, plants shed huge masses of roots hourly, daily, constantly, not just in fall when plants die. This is this part of the podcast, I think, when we put it up, I'm going to, like, uh, uh, cut a piece out, and I'm going to send it to Helen. <laughs> So and and I think I think there's uh there's more pieces coming up here but but the key is is that while Helen is adamant that uh and it's like it seems like she and I have this argument about every two months um and uh, and, and it seems like she can't forget where we left it the last time or she can't remember where where we left it the last time because usually it seems like where we leave it is I have her agreeing that that uh, uh, while the plant is alive, it exudes 2%, like a legume, a, legu a leguminous plant, that it, uh, it exudes 2% of its nitrogen uh, while it is alive. Now, so I think I advocate 2% while it's uh, alive, and then once it dies, then, um, you know, about 20 to 25% of the nitrogen that it has to share is shared uh, uh under the soil level, and the rest of it is above the soil level, although most of it is probably lost to denitrification you know, going into the atmosphere. That's, that's my position. So, but the point that we always argue about, and I think she agrees with, with the rest of it, it's the 2% that she has trouble with. And, and she feels that it might be like 0.02%. 
whereas I believe it's more like two percent. And um, and I really kind of think that that you know a lot of Fukuoka stuff uh, really supports this, and, I, and it seems like there's a lot of other stuff that supports it too. Now here uh, here's Toby's stuff, which basically um, doesn't get into saying two percent, but it would be great to have a podcast with Toby and ask him that exact question. What percent of a legume's um, uh, nitrogen is through um, is, is exuded while the plant is alive? And, and, and even ask him the source of where this is coming from, too, because I know when my sister was reading this book, she was wishing there were more sources or footnotes on each page for where he's getting some of this information. And, and Toby, as I mentioned before, is a walking bibliography himself. I mean, he just knows. Uh, he's he's read so much and studied so much in all of these areas that he and he can recall out of memory, um, off the cuff, where a lot of this stuff comes from. So that would be fascinating to find that out. And I, I think, you know, I think there's lots of models with the chop and drop and of how when you prune a plant, their roots die off in proportion to the pruning or in relation to the pruning. Um, And we just saw diagrams of that in the Jeff Lawton Food Forest movie that we saw a couple weeks ago. And, and, And so there's lots of examples of that if you're chopping it, if you're mowing your cover crop, if you're, and that's supposed to release some root die off. But this, this is different. This is, you, you know, this is not, this is just what Toby's saying here is that it's part of the normal cycle, uh, regardless of pruning or chopping or mowing. I, yeah. And and uh, as far as I, I think that there's a lot of truth to the thing about how if you stress the plant, now it's part of Helen's thing is like Fukuoka would would stress his clover so that they would have a, a fair amount of die off and thus release a lot of their nitrogen. Um, and uh, I, I think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, uh, I've certainly uh, heard of many, many examples uh, of that kind of thing. Um but yeah, I I agree, and, and and there's more coming up here that I want to read out of Toby's stuff that 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 really kind of supports that, um, and and I'm I'm really a big a big fan of of, of what he has to say here. Uh, yes, I think that Toby's and and while it would be interesting to hear the sources on it, um, my part of my feeling is kind of like. Um, yeah, Toby's like a walking bibliography. He he does know all this stuff. And part of me kind of thinks um if Toby says it's true, I I have a lot of stock in what he has to say. I I don't find myself challenging Toby very often. Mm-hmm. Um and and um uh I I don't find myself challenging Helen very often either. It's just that when I do and Helen's there, (laughs) then then it takes a long time until we can both get to a place that we're comfortable. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... But uh, Helen's also the one who um, said that thing to me about trust nobody, do the research yourself. And, and oh, she, in fact, she even said more than that. It was 15 years ago. She said, trust nobody, not even me. And ah. and, uh, and for that, I think she's 
extra awesome. Um, and I'm I'm sure Toby would have a very similar mindset. However, um, yeah, I I would I would feel uncomfortable challenging Toby. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, where do you get that? What's, what research do you have on that? What do you, you know, I I, I kind of feel like if Toby says this, I mean, if, if Toby were to say there's research showing it, I believe him. When Helen says there's research showing blah, 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 I, I believe it. Um, and and uh, uh, when Helen says, I doubt that there's research supporting your crazy ideas, then um, that in itself says that she's not sure. <laughs> And mm-hmm. and so uh, and it's and it, it is a lot of times where it, where it turns out that uh, well anyway <clears throat> you go ahead you challenge Toby I don't I, <laughs> no I, I I have huge respect for Toby as well and I I think he has I think he has the research to back up all of this I just it just reminded me of my sister's comment because my sister's worked in, you know, in research worlds. So, that's okay. I sometimes have issues with, with uh, published research in from the, the standpoint of I've seen things work multiple times that not published research or anything and it makes the evidence anecdotal, but it's still valid. You just can't use you can't cite it because you're you're the researcher and there's there aren't there isn't it isn't a blind study so true I I think that um, <clears throat> most of agricultural stuff at least the stuff that I'm interested in doesn't have um, a, a formal study to support it right no and and uh, it's kind of like. Uh, um, I mean, we, I think we've talked about this in a few podcasts in the past. It's like you've got you've to, you know, look at the studies that do exist, and you've got to weigh out your anecdotal evidence. And it's like if you've got a study that doesn't line up with your anecdotal evidence, then, um, you know, you've you got to kind of wonder if the study might have had some holes in it or if they, you know, threw out some data or, uh, or whatever. Um, and, and uh, you know, if you've got firsthand anecdotal evidence. Um, and and then sometimes it's like you're you're going to have a study and you're going to have some anecdotal evidence and you're going to think maybe the maybe whoever was telling me about this is full of shit and and so you know uh, I'm going to go with trusting the study. I, it, it depends on so many different things. Um, I mean it's it's been so often that something's been proven to be one way and later we find out that um, there were shenanigans going on. So uh, uh, it's it's hard it's, and and we're out there we're talking about some stuff that's a little off from the norm. I I like the idea. I think that there's so much room for growth in permaculture. These systems have not been optimized enough. I, I like, for example, I think it would be great to have something where it's like, let's talk about raspberries. And um, um, people have been growing raspberries through permaculture so much. So many millions of people have been growing raspberries in polyculture systems that we start coming up with uh, anecdotal information that says, if you grow raspberries with oak trees, that, that those have the best flavor. And then we'll have some kind of study that then is conducted to show that that yes that that you know amazingly enough uh, oak trees and by the way here's four other species that account for excellent raspberry flavor and here's some species that uh, you know don't do so good with raspberries you know like we we've, we've got a lot of really you know 
amazing growth in that space. We would optimize our systems, um, and and uh, I think that we've got. And in order to get there to the point that we do that, I mean, we've got to look at all the research that we have now, and we've got to we've got to wrap our heads around all of it and figure out which one might be conveying a message that doesn't really help us or they might not have taken into account something uh those two videos that we were talking about earlier there was one of them where um it said uh something about you know doing this grazing style versus this grazing style and the point that he was trying to make is that's stupid that's you know you're 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 it's going to come out to be exactly the same and sure enough the studies come out showing that they're exactly the same but what the study was attempting to say is therefore what you know this whole grazing thing makes no difference and and it's like you know no you measured the wrong thing and and so then there's all this uh so-called evidence that you know the, this 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 uh certain techniques are all bogus but it's like no you you measured it all wrong you didn't even understand what we were talking about and now you're saying that what we're talking about is wrong and that you proved it so um, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going on that's like that. Sure. <clears throat> All right. Sure. I have another piece to read. read. Go for it. Some argue that nitrogen fixers do little good until they die, when they release the nitrogen locked in the plant and microbial nodules. I disagree. And both my own observations and those of researchers support me. I've seen corn planted with and without beans in the same garden. And the corn entwined by beans is decidedly larger. On Washington's Orcas Island, the Bullock brothers routinely plant a nitrogen-fixing shrub such as autumn olive or Siberian pea shrub in the same hole as a fruit tree. Douglas Bullock categorically states, I've seen it, and I know that trees planted with a nitrogen fixer grow faster. Don't believe the anecdotes? Let's go to the research. William King reports in the Journal of Agronomy that when he interplanted ryegrass and clover, he found, using radioactive tracer compounds, that 80% of the nitrogen in the ryegrass had come from the clover. The clover was pulling nitrogen from the air and feeding it to the ryegrass. I found that a particularly interesting point. Mm. I think so, too. And we were just talking about that in research. <laughs> we were. <clears throat> Damn, this guy is good. <laughs> for, for some reason in this version, he must have been corrected or trying to correct his term. He changed it from what you read as using radioactive tracers or tracer compounds to just radioactive tracers. Uh-huh. So it's, it's kind of interesting. There's been a few little word clarifications um, that he's done in this in the second version. So now to mitigate this, I here here is an interesting point <clears throat> that um, 
I, I've practiced a little bit, but I never really thought about it. And, and, and this paragraph just really gives clarity to it. And it's so important. I, I want to read this one. But remember that balance is important. All that nitrogen must be balanced with carbon. Soil organisms consume 10 to 50 times more carbon than nitrogen. So farmers always blend a grass or other non-legume into their cover crops. A cover crop rich in nitrogen will rekindle the soil's uh, the soil life's metabolic fires, burning prodigious amounts of carbon to balance the nitrogenous bounty. A too rich nitrogen fuel can actually deplete more organic matter than the cover crop adds. For this reason, commercial cover crop mixes contain 10 to 40 percent oats, annual ryegrass, or other non-legume. Interesting stuff. Yeah. All right, I've got one last little bit, and uh, and then I'm, I'll be ready to wrap up the podcast. <clears throat> Peaceful Valley Farm Supply carries a soil builder mix <clears throat> that contains bell beans, winter peas, two vetch varieties, and oats. See the resources section. And that's just the beginning. I've seen old farm texts that list 15 varieties in their cover crop mixtures, including four grass species, five clovers, plus yarrow, fennel, plantain, dandelion, and more. So the, the, the thing that I thought was extra fun in here is that uh, the plantain and the dandelion and the yarrow, I mean, these are like, uh, and including grasses, these are like things that a lot of people consider to be weeds. Mm-hmm. Right. My yard's full of it. <laughs> yeah, I, it it is fascinating, and, and he has built such a wonderful case for how... You know, this diversity works together, how it works to build the soil, works to build the humus, and that it's so much more effective than anything we try to construct in some of our conventional gardening methods, conventional gardening or conventional farming methods. So it's excellent. excellent and, and it's Peaceful Valley Farm Supply, which I think I've recommended before, is, is the one that, you know, I usually go to. Yep. So... All right. I think it's excellent. Anything else to say about Chapter 4 of Gaia's Garden? He has a nice table on cover crops, but, of course, those are the, you know, individual plants and, and what they're good for. Oh, right. I love the tables in his book. When he was starting to write the second edition, um, I, I, that was the one thing that I was really emphatic about. I, I, I said uh, um, that while there are a lot of things I want to suggest, you know, I'm, I'm going to limit myself to just one thing because I think it would be so awesome, cool. And that is, like, if you notice how, like, in his table, he's got something that's, like, uh, in-fixer and tolerates poor soil and insectary, and he's got a dot, like, like check, like the, you know, this is a nitrogen fixer. Um, for those things, what I asked was is to go through these tables and replace the dot with uh, a number, like 1 to 10. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would kind of show, you know, how good it is. 
you know. So like like in some of the tables in the very back of the book, he's got he's got like all these different kinds of plants, and one of the columns is I think like you know is it good for chicken feed or something like that. Um, and uh, I kind of like the idea like like for example Siberian pea shrub is marked as oh it's good for chicken feed, and I kind of think how good. I mean, the peas in it, they're like tiny, <laughs> you know? And do the chickens get there and eat the leaves? I don't, I don't know. Do they, I, don't, I don't think they eat the leaves, do they? And, and, but it's like the, the actual little seeds or peas that come off of it are, it's like they, they just seem so crazy tiny. I can't help but think that even though it would provide chicken feed, it would be like, like a really a really low amount of chicken feed per acre, and and uh, but I don't know. I I mean I'm really curious about that. Um, and uh, uh, how does it compare to others? So um, uh, in the meantime, like he's also got uh, you know uh, a check mark next to um, mulberry as providing chicken feed. But I kind of think, okay, now mulberry is really cranking out the chicken feed. I mean, especially if it gets to be a tall tree. This is going to pour down so much food that it's it's going to be hard for the animals to keep up, um, you know, during during three months out of the year. So, well, in the second edition, it does still just have dots or just indicators. I know, and so I'm whining. Okay. <laughs> Maybe someday there'll be a third edition, and then uh, when if Toby comes out to permies.com and says, hey, I'm thinking about writing a third edition, anybody have any suggestions on what I should add? Maybe 50 people will all suggest the same thing. <laughs> and then we'll have that. That would be cool. <laughs> okay. Well... That was a meaty chapter. But that is a good... The the tables in the book are awesome. That table is a very good table. And and I know that in later chapters we're going to start talking about polycultures and guilds and things like that. And then and that's the question that most people ask is like, what what do I put in my polyculture? What do I put in my guild for my apple tree? And uh, so we'll get to that. And and these tables just become super valuable then. Yep. You know, when you were talking earlier about how how it's known raspberries taste better if they're grown underneath oaks, they also taste better underneath apple trees and maple trees. I just know that from experience. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, and so now I think that that uh, we're getting into advanced permaculture there, and I'd like to see permaculture evolve so much that that is the kind of common conversation that we have, not let's stop growing things in rows. So, mm. all right. I, I, I think that's an excellent, excellent point, Paul. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about polyculture, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Mm.